I was a teacher, I had little kids. I couldn't ever tell anybody what I was doing. So it was very hush-hush. Love and romance and connection and commitment doesn't need to be so completely self-sacrificing to the point that we become totally selfless. What do I need more? What do we need more? What does he need more? That's what it's about. My name is Abby and I'm the voice behind the Evolving Love Project. In this podcast, my husband and I deep dive into the topics of non-monogamy and polyamory, drawing from our experiences of being consensually non-monogamous for almost a decade. My name is Liam. Whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, curious or anything in between, we invite you to join us for this conversation. Let's begin. Just a quick note before we start the show to let you know that the Evolving Love podcast is ad-free thanks to the support of listeners. To unlock a premium subscription and gain access to our premium podcast feed, please head to evolvingloveproject.substack.com. Premium members will receive two extra episodes a month and unlock access to all of Abby's incredible writing. Link in the show notes. Molly Roden Winter is the author of More, an intimate memoir of love, desire, and personal growth that follows a happily married mother as she explores sex and relationships outside of her marriage. Since the book was released just over a week ago, More is now a New York Times bestseller, and Molly has graced the pages of the New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, Time Magazine, and the London Times, who referred to her as the face of polyamory. Now we bring to you Molly Roden Winter. Molly, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. We're so excited to have you on our podcast. Thank you for having me. Oh, we have really been looking forward to this. So, Molly, you have written the most incredible memoir, More. It is the most beautiful and incredibly real story of opening up your marriage and all of the, the trials and the growth and the moments of pain and discovery. It is so honest. And first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for your generosity to share this story because it's just when people write their memoirs, they can sometimes, you know, we're, we're putting in putting in the, the good things or we're trying to come across as a certain way or, you know, what we stand for or this or that. Your memoir is just so how it was, you know. Of course, yeah. things would have been changed, names and some identifying characteristics of people. But, I mean, it is just an absolute journey. I have been, like, I, when I'm reading your memoir, I don't know whether to laugh or cry or have an orgasm or like <laughs> it is an a- <laughs> it is an absolute roller coaster and you cannot put this memoir down. You just absolutely cannot. So thank you so much for writing it. I just had to say that just straight out the gate. Thank you, Abby. I appreciate it. Why did you decide to write this incredibly personal memoir? I've been asking myself that a lot in the last 24 hours. <laughs> Why, Molly? Why? Um, But then I remember I did have a real reason. The reason, in short, is I didn't see anything. A few reasons. One is I didn't see anything out there that represented my story. You know, and you'll see the occasional modern love essay or, you know, and not and not to um, belittle anything else that I have seen. Uh, It's just. I wasn't seeing a story about polyamory that showed both what was so hard about it and how it could be successful. 
I felt like there was either they were either the stories that ended in, well, we tried it and that didn't work. Right. (laughs) Mm. Or it seemed to cut to. Yeah, everything's great. And I was like, that didn't feel true either, because I know how hard it was for me. And I'm like, okay, maybe for some people it's super easy or it's just like I was just born non-monogamous. And I know there are people like that. Um, I'm not one of them. But I also know that through this path, and it's not a path that I'm trying to convince others to try. It's just been my path for this amazing self-discovery for, you know, it gets a little cliche after a while to say that. But um, and then I also knew that my story was unique because my parents had an open marriage. And Mm. that lends my story a little gravitas, I think, because they've been married for almost 60 years. And Mm. um, not that it's always been easy, but they're very devoted to each other. And they have perspective now in their 80s on what that means for them today. And I felt like even though my parents were not eager to talk about it, I did not find out from them. I found out from my aunt, who is now a little concerned that she is being immortalized as the blabbermouth. But I have told her, (laughs) I'm so glad she told me. And it opened up these conversations with my mother and now more recently my father that have been really valuable. So I wanted to kind of break the silence around it because I grew up without knowing. And Mm. then finally, in my adult life, being able to talk to my mother. I mean, think about it. I am in a situation where when I started having desire for a man who was not my husband, kind of the only two people who could handle me talking about it were my husband and my mother. Mm. They were able to handle it much more than my friends were. Um, And my friends were right to be a little worried because I was getting, as you read in the book, I was pretty off the rails for a while. Um, But it's just such a gift to have those people that you usually say, oh, I could never tell my husband. Oh, I could never tell my mother. I could. And I thought that was a really significant part of my story. I know it's a significant part of my story. Having that support um, was crucial. So I knew nobody nobody else could tell my story. And my story is kind of interesting, I think. Um, and I wanted to do it justice. I wanted to tell it in a way that felt real. It's why I wrote in the present tense. I didn't, I, I, I started over about six times. My agent told me, I had to start over, over and over and over again. Um, And he was right. And finally, when I found my voice in the present tense, that's how I was able to kind of embody that past version of myself. The story covers, Mm -hmm. I think it's about when your age now, Abby, it covers my my experience from like age 35 to 45. And now I'm 51. So looking back at it, when I was starting to write this in 2019 at 47 or whatever I was, I couldn't. I was writing about my 35-year self as if I had already lived the next decade and knew all that it meant and all that it didn't mean. And that wasn't on, I mean, it wasn't honest to who I was then. So I, Mm. I rewrote it in present tense with the idea that I would go back and change it to past because everybody, I mean, when you look at writing craft books or whatever, they say, ah, present tense doesn't work. Um, 
But I was like, let me try it and then I can go back and change it again if I need to. And I, and I really, it felt right to me. It felt, it felt raw and vulnerable and it felt like a representation of who I was in those moments. What were the moments like when you initially went to your mother and you said, hey, mom, I've heard something along the grapevine. Can you confirm or deny this, uh, this little rumor? What were those initial conversations like? It was a very um, intense time. My oldest son was born and a couple weeks afterwards, um, my husband's father died suddenly. So here I, we were new parents. Stuart has lost his father. He goes to Florida where his parents had moved. They moved from New York to Florida. And my mother came to help with the baby. And it was it was a time of some raw emotion of mm. grief and joy and everything in between. And I think I was also just so exhausted. All my um, all my filters had disappeared or something. And I just asked her. I said, I said, mm -hmm. it, it, it was a year after my aunt had told me. I kept it in for a year because my aunt had told me that my mother had an affair. And mm. so I asked my mother, I was like, you know, I know about the affair. Does dad know? And she said, it was your father's idea. Mm. And mm. I was like, oh. And we didn't discuss it again until I opened up my marriage six years later. I mean, what a yeah. gift of honesty she gave you. She would be the first to admit, I think, that this was not her plan. And it was not my plan to talk to my children about it either. In fact, your original question, Liam, about the idea to write the book, I got the idea during a meditation and it wouldn't go away. But I thought, you know, my youngest was 14 at the time. And I thought, well, I can't. He didn't know about the open marriage. My older one did. But I was like, I got to wait till he's, you know, a grown up. And then I'll think about writing it. Right. Mm. And then the next month he found out. So I was like, oh, I guess I better write it. I guess it's I guess this is a sign from the universe that I'm supposed to write it now. And as you know, as it so happens, it took me quite a while to write it and to get it into the world. And it came out, you know, now that my youngest is 19. So it worked out time wise. And what a way to start the book. You start the book by having this moment of getting these messages from your son where he's discovered mm. that you're in an open relationship and how it's just, you know, it wasn't this planned sit down conversation where you were able to be composed and be organized and, you know, talk through it, you know, with Stu and have it be that sort of collective, you know, thing. It was a, um, a discovery. So that, I mm -hmm. mean, just the first page, my heart was racing <laughs> on the first page reading that. You mentioned something just before about how with your mother and their, you know, their their affair you know the affair in the book you know she she still continues or it's discussed as it being an affair it's not really discussed mm -hmm. as being an open marriage it was an affair that your father encouraged this is really really interesting because you know early on in the piece as well in the in your book and your story Stu is so encouraging of you with his with your exploration of opening the relationship and 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 being there and supporting you but it's also you know, you and Stu are having such different experiences of compersion. And Stu, you know, actually reminds me a lot of, of you, Liam, but he's really feeling that, you know, in this embodied way. And it's fascinating, Molly, because immediately the conversation sort of arises of, of people pleasing and who is this for? And you being very aware of going, you know, this is actually my my journey and I'm not I'm not doing this to sort of 
cater to your compersion. This is consensual and we're on the journey together, but there's something in you that's saying, you know, I have done so much for so many different people in my life. Like this is, this is something that's, that's for me. And I find that so fascinating. Thank you for giving me credit that it was immediate. You have to remember, though, the book starts when I'm 35. And yes. I do as a kind of brief little flashback to my 20s when we were going to sex clubs and mm. having threesomes and things like that. And I was very ambivalent, right? Mm. Um, but not expressing that. And one of the things in the book I, I wrote in an author's note at the beginning that I had gone back to my my journals to kind of consult my memory of things. And the main thing that shocked me was I was looking up one of those, you know, early trips to a sex club and my gut feeling about it was just like, <gasps> you know, it was like there were parts of it that were so icky to me. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, and in the book, journal, I just talked about how great it was and how much fun it was. And mm. and we have a conversation in the book where I'm like, oh, how is that? Po-? You know, and Stu's like, both are true. And isn't mm. that an amazing thing that both are true? Right. Mm. Um, and this is kind of, I think, part of what is so hard for people to wrap their head around with non-monogamy or in America anyway, with anything sexual. We have deep puritanical roots. I mean, you can speak mm. to how mm-hmm. much that is true in Australia as well. Um, my current boyfriend is also Australian. So he he says where Ooh. he's from, he's from Brisbane. And uh, he says it's very much like the American Midwest. So mm. um, yes, I, I think that both were true. There was part of me that felt um, like I was in this pleaser role. And part of it was, yeah, the male gaze Right. That Mm. the the object it felt too objectifying to me. Nobody knew me. Right. Nobody knew that I'm freaking hilarious or that I'm like really good (laughs) at boggle or whatever it is. Right. They they're just like nice ass. Right. Mm. And that doesn't do anything for me sexually. Mm. It does Mm. nothing for me. I like to be seen and known in my entirety. Mm. Um, I didn't know that then, though. I didn't know that. And so I felt like you can tell when I go out, when I meet the first person I met where I opened up the Mm. marriage, and this happens very early in part one of the book, right after that prologue you described with my son. um, I think it was like the first time in my married life that I felt like I got that male desire that was not about my physicality. Um, mm. It was about like me because I was I, I leave the house. I'm not I don't have any makeup. I haven't showered. I have a six year old mm-hmm. and a three year old at home. I'm kind of a hot mess. Right. And this guy <laughs> was like into me. And I'm like, what? You know, and it felt great. <laughs> it felt so good. But I didn't want to share that with anybody else. Like I wanted to be able to tell Stuart about it. But I but it was for me. It wasn't Mm. if as soon as if I had brought Stuart into it as well, it would have been for him. And there were times that it was for him in our bed. And I I grapple with this in the book, too. And I don't have an easy answer. There are no easy answers about what makes us desire what we desire. But um, there was something about not not because I think I was pushing back from that people pleaser um, Mm. role that most women find themselves in. Uh, because mm. it's you're encouraged to be a good girl and to do things for other people. And 
I've been thinking of this word that we use for mothers as a compliment. We say mm. that mothers are selfless. Oh, she's so mm. selfless. And when you really unpack that word, it's like no self, mm. you know, mm. and I don't want to not have a self. And I felt like mm. my self was slipping away. So anyway, this mm. is a very long answer, but this is this is kind of all the complications that were going on with me. I, I certainly didn't arrive at that moment, though, Abby, where I was like, this is for me. I mean, this was like, you know, 35 mm. is no, you know, you've lived. You're not like mm. you're not a babe mm-hmm. in the woods at 35. Um, but I still had a lot, a lot of learning left to do. So how much of those initial explorations were really informed by your kind of identity or your feelings of being a mother? It's interesting, Liam. I, I feel like I discovered more of that as I was writing, you know, because mm. I was trying to get into those moments and like what was going on. And I mean, it also happened in therapy. It did happen in therapy, too. And I write a lot about uh, there are quite a few scenes in my therapist's office in the book as well, just making that connection. But it wasn't it felt to me like I was, okay. I'm putting motherhood away and I'm exploring Mm. this other thing, not thinking about how these things could possibly be connected (laughs) or the fact that true Um, self-actualization happens when you can integrate all these parts of yourself and you don't have to compartmentalize, right? When you Mm. don't have to Mm. say, only half of me is showing up for this and another half will show up for this or actually let's break it into like tenths. You know what I mean? Like this is my Mm. work self. This is my friend self. This is my daughter self. This is my, you know, and, and, I think women in particular are so trained from such an early age to be performative in these roles that we don't ever get the chance to integrate them all together and to know who the heck we are, Um, Mm. our humanity, our essential humanity, which is not that different, I think, from male humanity, personally. Mm. This is the Mm. moment in some ways, like gender is kind of breaking down, too. It's like all these things that we thought Mm. were our, our proper roles in life. I think they're breaking down and we're starting to get at our essential humanity in a way that feels really vital. And that's another thing that I've been feeling as this book has been coming into the world and the way people are responding to it. The gender role thing is really interesting because I I did make, uh, perhaps, uh, hopefully you haven't made the same mistake of reading the comments section of the New York Times article that came out. And there's some, I there's read some it, real zingers I read them before I went to bed the other night. That was a terrible oh, idea. Goodness. <laughs> the Washington Post is worse, though. Oh, I haven't checked out that one yet. But the, there were remarkable similarities in some of the people's responses to Stu's role within your open relationship and almost challenging mm-hmm his role as a husband and saying mm. what kind of husband would let his wife go and do these things like right, what an right. awful display of 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 uh, kind of male affection having that kind of that real <laughs> sense of patriarchy that has to flow through all relationships and that ownership and that's something that your book pushes against so heavily and Stu being such a beautiful partner he really deprograms a lot of those those kind of tales we're told as men thank you for for that i think um I I do think though that the that people who who feel that way are are it's not like I blame anybody for these feelings. I think we have all been, you know, it's it's like a throwing a frog in boiling water. You know what I mean? If you if you throw a frog in boiling water, it hops out. If you boil a frog, he just gets used to it, right? And it's just the water temperature until he dies. Um, it's kind of a harsh 
metaphor, but um, I think patriarchy is the boiling water we're swimming in. There, there are a lot of things that are part of that, you know, and I'm and I don't pretend like my personal sex explorations is like going <laughs> to contribute to the downfall of capitalism or anything. I am very much benefiting from all of these things that, um, you know, I, I, I know that I have a lot of privilege too, but I think there is something happening now where we're questioning and we, we can't fight each other over these ideas of, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And, that's partly why mm. I don't even want to read the comments because I feel like people are people who get upset. It's largely because of fear, and we're all kind mm. of afraid of each other, and mm. Um, mm. not recognizing the ways in which we're all exactly the same. In the book, there's so, the you know it's this journey of of self exploration, discovery, and also how that how that is connecting in with your with your role as mother and how you show up to your children, and you know, how your children, they're all, they're always with you. You know, I remember in the book, there's, there's one part where, you, where you're in Central Park and you're having this moment with somebody and then you're thinking, you know, where, you know, my, where my children are getting picked up from school right now. And, you yeah. know, you're always tuned in, like as a mother, you're never like not tuned in. And, you know, there's also, there's another part in the book where you're, um I mean, there are so many things, but things that stood out for me. There's one moment where you're with your little ones and you're tired and it's the morning and you've got your coffee and you're resting your head against the wall. And then the text comes in and you get a text from, you know, new potential lover. And it's like this, this energy, that sort of this excitement that comes into you. It's like, it's like a wake up, you know, when I'm reading those pages, it's like you've woken up within yourself and then how Mm -hmm. that energy can then get transferred, you know, to your children. It's like, there's now like Mm -hmm. a kick in the step. You're feeling Mm -hmm. like enlivened and, you know, what, what was feeling a little bit sleepy before is now very much awake. And I Mm -hmm. really love that because I personally connect with that you know, in the past as well. And, and I, and I do still, you know, if I'm sort of like just, just going through it and then this aspect of the non-monogamy, a partner, a connection, and it's like, all of a sudden I'm like, I'm like buzzing, you know, I just thought that was so, so incredibly fascinating. And, you know, I was wondering, have you had many other like non-monogamous mothers reach out to you and sort of share their experience with that? Or what have, what have the conversations been like with other non-monogamous mums? We were talking about this a little before we started um, mm. recording, Abby, I, I don't know a lot of non-monogamous moms, you mm. know, um, that's partly why I wrote the book. Uh, I've gotten a few DMs on Instagram lately, and we were just, that's how we found each other, right, mm-hmm. on Instagram, um, and another woman, another American um, living in another state who um, joined us and we're calling ourselves the non-monogamoms. I read that somewhere, so we can't like <laughs> coin it, but I, I think it's a good term for the lexicon. Um, and so I haven't had a lot of these conversations, but I'm, I'm looking forward to that. But I also want to say, this has been coming up a lot too. I want to talk also about how, how else women can find that energy within themselves, mm. even if they're not, because I also have friends who are not, who do not feel com- particularly sexual, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe that, maybe something else has to awaken first, or maybe not at all. I don't feel like it's entirely, I think you would agree. It's not, it's that feeling mm. isn't entirely about sex. It's about mm. 
freedom. It's about being mm-hmm. seen. It's about mm-hmm. feeling something in yourself that is not does not belong to somebody else that does not mm-hmm. belong to your family um, and your role. So, mm. you know, I've gotten a buzz like that when I'm getting ready for one of my my guitar you know, open mics. It's it's a very, you know, <laughs> low bar kind of uh, excite. I mean, it's it's still super exciting to me, though. I'm like, oh, mm. we got to like rehearse and we got to like, you know what I mean? It's like it's this new it's stretching something that a muscle that mm. I forgot I had. You know, it's um, mm. it's it's really exciting. So I I, I also want to be clear when I'm when I'm talking with people, this is not um, saying everybody needs to go out and be non-monogamous. Like that's the Mm -hmm. only way to find yourself. No, Mm. it was my way. Um, But it's Mm. led to other paths that um, have also been super fulfilling. So I think it's important to remind people to find freedom and space within yourself and Mm. to allow your partner to have space and freedom within themselves so that they can grow. Reading your memoir, it's quite emotional for me in some parts as well, well, for many, but also because Liam and I have a connection to New York City. You know, we're Mm -hmm. here in Canberra in Australia. And when we opened up our relationship, we were living in Park Slope as well. We were living in the same neighbourhood that you live in. On 5th and Baltic. Cool. On 5th right and... Right next to Key Foods. On 5th, we lived nice. right next to Key Foods. I won't tell you what intersection I'm at. I'm trying to keep it a little bit quiet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were living on 5th Avenue and, and like we were opening up our relationship and walking those streets um, of Park Slope as well. And it, and in the book, you're referencing, you know, at, at one point you, you mentioned Babeland, you know, the sex shop right next to the vegan cafe. I know that cafe so well. I used to sit in it regularly you know the bloom burger was my go-to you were pregnant when we uh when we went to to sun and bloom sun and bloom yeah sun and bloom i don't know if it's there anymore it's closed yeah it did close i think when we were still living in new york um so it's incredible it's like reading your memoir is so it has been such a fascinating experience for me because there is i feel so connected to your story and especially with the differences sort of between, you know, you and Stu, I'm feeling that, you know, between Liam and I, it's like we're two non-monogamous people. We're in the same marriage, but we're having, often we're having quite different experiences of that. And you convey mm-hmm. that so beautifully, but also just the location, you know, and, you know, and I just couldn't believe it as well with, with Sleep No More. When we went to Sleep No More, we went with some friends of ours and then who were our, I think were they like monogamous friends at the time or something? Like we went to sleep no more and then we ended up having a, a crazy like foursome with them that night. So there's like something about, it's like you I'm guys, reading you guys book. should You guys should read a book. Your, your book sounds more exciting than my book. No, 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 not at all. But I'm like, I'm reading the book and I'm just like, wow, like I can really, you know, picture that. And it's, yeah, it's it's been an amazing experience. Wouldn't you agree, Liam? Oh, yeah. And it's it's fascinating what reading your book against the backdrop of New York. Do you feel that this, if you lived in another city, New York has this incredible vibrancy. It has this this incredible melting pot of different people and and different personalities and all these fascinations. Do you think that you would have had a similar trajectory within your relationship if you lived in, you know, another place in America? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm going to be interested to see how people in different places respond. I mean, I've done a little research just in terms of, you know, when I was putting together my book proposal, for example, to get a sense of how widespread non-monogamy is, particularly in America. And it's it's most popular with younger people. 
um, Gen Z um, millennials more than Gen Xers like me. Um, but then who knows? Because people are very closeted about it. And my parents didn't want to tell anybody. And they're, you know, baby boomers. So I think they're baby boomers. They're right on the cusp of that and whatever came before that. Sorry. Um, but I think there's the generational thing. And then geographically, yes, I think um, there's something about being in a place like, you know, the more liberal cities or the cities with a more liberal bent, socially liberal, at least like New York or San Francisco or, you know, Portland or um, Austin, maybe um, that that makes it easier because you're more likely to find people or you just have a little more variety. But you know what's funny? Um, I was getting asked this question last night about dating apps. And when Stuart mm -hmm. and I started, uh, and, and this may lead into something else you wanted to talk about, there were no dating apps and there was no, um, there certainly wasn't, you know, a non-monogamy choice in the drop-down menu, <laughs> you know? Mm. So it was more like, and for my parents, come on, it was like, people they knew, right? It had to be mm. people that came into their lives somehow in another way. And I feel like um, when we started, because I didn't know how to find people, I went on Ashley Madison, which is mm -hmm. the site for people who are cheating. Um, and the tagline is life is short, have an affair. It's very mm. interesting. As we speak, Ashley Madison is working to rebrand themselves as a site for non-monogamous people, um, which I think is highly encouraging that there's more, there is more um, of a market, shall we call it, mm -hmm. you know, to use mm. those capitalistic terms because money talks, right? There's more of mm -hmm. a market for people who want to be open about their desire as opposed to people who are cheating. And the opposite was true even 15 years ago when we opened our marriage. So in 2008, I found online and it wasn't like an app. There weren't, you know, it was like on the computer, I would go home and do it. I, I went on Ashley Madison because I didn't want to meet how was I going to meet? I wasn't going to go on a dating app for single people because I didn't want anyone to see me there because I was very, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, a mm -hmm. I was a teacher. I had little kids. I wasn't going to like, you know, it seemed like I couldn't ever tell anybody what I was doing. So it was very hush hush. You had fake names. Um, all of that was true. And then it wasn't until 2015 that OkCupid, and they were the first ones that I was aware of anyway, added you know, non-monogamous to the drop-down menu. And even in Brooklyn, even in liberal old Brooklyn, um, Stuart and I kept getting matched with each other. They were like, it felt like there were like 12 people. You know what I mean? I was just like, come on. You know what I mean? It was like, oh. and you would go through and I'd be like, okay, I went out with you and you and you and you and you and okay, I guess I'm done. That's it. That's it for non-monogamous. Because it took husband. a while. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, I guess yeah. I'll just go out with my husband again. I mean, not like that was a problem, but it was it was kind of encouraging. I was like, we were always the 99.9% match. And I'm like, duh, you know. Um, but then I was like, at a certain point, you're like, where, you know, this, it didn't feel like a big movement. Let's put it that way. Mm. And that was eight years ago, you know. Um, and now I have friends saying that everybody on the apps in Brooklyn, at least, says mm. they're ENM. And it, it, <laughs> what it often means is they want to date many people until they find the person that they want to be monogamous with. And that's fair. Um, but, yeah, there's been a lot of change, even in 15 years, and a lot of change 
since my parents were doing what they called an experiment um, that they thought they were inventing. <laughs> and so they, they partly didn't use the term open marriage because they had never heard it. And they partly used the term affair, I've come to understand, kind of recently, because like my mother will say that my grandmother had affairs before she was married. Like having mm. sex outside of marriage is an affair to mm. many generations, Right. Mm. Um, we use the lingo differently now, but that's what an affair was. So when my aunt said she had an affair, she wasn't, you know, trying to catch my. It was it was just like any any there was no such thing as sex outside of marriage. That was OK, whether you were mm. unmarried or had, you know, an agreement with your partner. So I think that's all very interesting. Mm, it is. It's absolutely fascinating. That didn't answer your question at all, though about geography. I don't know what it would be like somewhere else, but I do know what it's like to be somewhere where nobody seems to be doing it. That's the way it felt in Brooklyn Mm. in Mm. 2008. What's it like now to be walking the streets of Park Slope and suddenly you're a non-monogamous superstar? In the New York Times and everywhere. (laughs) It's winter, so I'm very bundled up and it's very cold and people aren't walking around outside too much right now. Um, Mm. But I did have my book launch last night and I had a few of my former students in the audience. And if <gasps> the, the, the principal, you know, she was the head of the middle school where I taught came and had like tears in her eyes with like pride oh. for me. And a bunch of women from my gym came and a bunch of people from the cafe where I hang out, Cafe Martin. I know this is an Australian podcast, but I still have to give a shout out. If you're ever in Brooklyn, come to Cafe Martin. It's the best. Um, <laughs> my friend owns it. So I had all these people from different parts of my life that showed up and it was so lovely. Um, and I've had nothing but support and it's really nice. Mm. So you haven't been recognized in the aisles of of, uh, of the co-op or the, or the union market? I have to. I feel like I have to come out as not a co-op <laughs> member. You know what I mean? I feel like that's... That's more shameful than Park Slope that I like buy groceries at like. Yeah, that's the real scandal. I buy groceries at Whole Foods in Seatown. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know it's terrible. It's it is more shameful to be honest. Like it's like ethically speaking, I should belong to the co-op and I do not. I am look. I am a bad Park Sloper. Look, I remembered. I remember doing my shifts at the uh, at the food co-op, and I definitely had a crush on our um, the, Ross. Uh, don't say the name. Oh, sorry. <laughs> You'll yeah, have to bleep the, the that out. I don't know if he's still there. The but... organizer of our team. Yeah, I definitely had the hots for him. He was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I mean, there were there were so many hotties at the food co-op, and and that's the thing because you're, well, you're maybe, working. Maybe yeah, I should every month. join I mean... the food co-op. No, I don't have time. It's not too late. I'm. <laughs> I'm polysaturated, they say now. You are definitely too polysaturated for the food. I am very polysaturated at the moment. I'm good. So you're everywhere now, Molly. You're in the New York Times. You're in the Washington Post. You're in the the, the New Yorker. It's all happening for you. How is the um? How, how are your sons going with this? You know, mommy's out. She's written this incredible book. She's she's making waves. People are having all sorts of reactions. People are triggered. People are proud. People are you know feeling all of the things that they're going to feel when somebody releases, you know, a memoir. So far, so good. Um, They're both proud of me and have vocalized that. Um, They both have their own lives, you know, and Mm. I've made it clear. I'm like, they are not the target market for this book, (laughs) right? It's like, 
they are 19 and 21, mm-hmm. happily doing their own thing. That's exactly the way I want it. I think one of the things I wrote about in the book, too, and Abby, that was interesting, the connection we have around this, my mother's involvement in a religious group. And I do want to say on the record, I called it a cult in the book. She does not call it a cult. And Mm -hmm. she didn't love that I used that word in the book. Um, I told her, though, I was very careful not to put it in her mouth or to state it in any way except it comes out of my mouth. Um, Mm -hmm. But I also told her, I was like, anybody can Google Mahakari and they'll Mm -hmm. see all sorts of things about it. But I said, there are also a lot of people that call Catholicism a cult. So it's like, I'm not calling Catholicism a cult. I don't know. I'm going to try to stay neutral. But um, what what is a cult? What isn't a cult? Anyway, my mother Mm -hmm. had what was her own spiritual journey happening alongside her open marriage journey. Mm. And she brought me into that spiritual journey by Mm. asking me to become a member of Mahakari when I was 10 years old. And she since has seen that that was too young and I didn't know what I was doing and I was being a people pleaser and I Mm -hmm. agreed to do it. And it was kind of time consuming and felt like, you know, when you're I was I was also very young in middle school. I was already Mm -hmm. I don't know what grade systems you use in Australia exactly, but middle school, sixth grade, usually you're 11 and I was nine. So I was already feeling kind of like other in my group. And um, this made it even more other. So I'm sensitive to not making my journey, my kids' journeys. They get Mm. to have Mm. their own journey. And it doesn't have to do with me. So I am protective of them in that, you know, this does not have to be about them. They don't. And this is partly why it's just so great how all the timing worked out that, you know, one of my mm-hmm. kids is a touring musician and the other one is in college. And I'm not going to say which band or which school because I want them to not have to deal with it. Um, and I'm very proud of them and they are very cool fun, sweet, kind young men that I'm very proud of. Um, Mm. And they're doing just fine without coming along on my ride. So they're not going to turn up to the house to to family dinner with five girlfriends each and, you know, the big polycule and everyone has a a, (laughs) a big chat around the table? I mean, nor will either Stu or I, to be fair. Like we we (laughs) had early conversations. We were always on the same page. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with forming a polycule or having like what they call kitchen table poly. It was never our deal. We don't even really like it when people come and stay in our guest room, to be honest. Like we're kind (laughs) of like we like our vibe. Mm. And so introducing Mm. more people into that feels really overwhelming. Right. Mm. Stuart also Mm. told me early on that he wasn't going to date anybody who was like who was like me because he's like, I've already got the best you there is, you know, and then I was like, oh, right. But I you know, he wants to date people who are very different from me and they're not necessarily, you know, they're lovely people. I've met many of them, but they're not necessarily going to become like my hanging partners. You know what I mean? Like that would Mm. make it. It's just like too many, too many votes. All of a sudden, Mm. you know what I mean? It's like it's hard enough for two people to come to any sort of agreement about how you're going to live. I I I my hats off to people who make it work. But it sounds really hard. I'm sure that's the way people feel when they hear about what I'm doing. Like, oh, my God, how do you do that? 
You know, I feel mm. the same way about like having a polycule. I'm like, wow. Although it would mm. be nice to have an extra set of hands if you're raising kids <laughs> together. I can see I can the benefits, see yeah. the advantage there. Yeah. But when we started, our kids were already too like it, it wasn't it wasn't going to happen for me in our generation at that time. But I think it could happen with, you know, some some lovely outcomes. Yeah, look, I mean, we feel the same as you. Like, we feel like our family unit, we're very much, you know, in our own space, like our own space. We like being able to talk freely, just the two of us. Um, It's never really appeal to have partners that are like really like in our family unit or in our Mm -hmm. life. But the same as you, it's like there's so many different ways. So there are people out there who are doing it great and, you know, good for them. But I, um, yeah, really, really connect with you on that as well. And I just want to say also coming back to you talking about the kids, like your your sons who are finding out, it's, it's really amazing for me to hear this because, you know, we have our son, he's five. We're here mm-hmm. in this non-monogamous space. You know, I'm writing about it as well. We've got our podcast and, you know, it's really inspiring to, to, to hear about this because, that, you know, I do get asked a lot, you know, what's going to happen one day when, you know, how is he going to find out? Are you going to tell him? Is he going to discover it? Are you going to introduce him to a partner or like what's happening with that and I just don't really have the answers for that and so what I always sort of come back to is that that faith in the relationship that we have with him you know Mm -hmm. he knows who we are as parents and you know the connection that we have and that you know he's he's on his journey as well so no I really it's really amazing yeah to hear that your sons are just like you know they they're proud of you they love that but they don't need to get like too involved in it you know, it's not like a part of their world. No, it doesn't have to be. And I also tell them it's it's not always like my main storyline either. You know what I mean? Mm. For, for many of the years that I'm writing about in the book, it's a main storyline. But now it's like I I have, you know, the partners I have. And um, some of them are kind of like coming and get, you know what I mean? It's like a friendship that it's mm-hmm. where that's always on the table, which is kind of fun. Um, and then mm. there's a partner I have who I've had for three years, who's also in an open marriage and also like a busy person and lives in a different neighborhood that he loves. And I love my neighborhood and he would never want to live in Park Slope and I would never want to live. He's in Bushwick. Um, but it's fun <laughs> to visit. Super fun to visit. Mm. Um, mm. Stuart doesn't even want to go to Bushwick. Right. And so it's like. <laughs> He's like, perfect. Off you go. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm like, Woo, we're going to go to the club. And he's like, no, thank you. Right. But <laughs> but my boyfriend also did come to my birthday party and he met my mm. older son, who's 21. And I asked my son in advance if that would be OK. And then my son introduced me to his girlfriend at the same party. So that was nice. And I hadn't met any of his girlfriends before. Did mm. you get the sense that your son was protective in that moment? Like he was like, this is moment, my mom. Like when he was meeting, oh, with, like a with my, of yours? I don't know. I think, I think, you know, everybody, everybody was on their best behavior. It was very funny. So okay. I was, <laughs> I was the one who was like more like ah, but it was, it was sweet. It was sweet, and it's, and I wouldn't do that with just anybody. They haven't mm. met anybody ever before. You know what I mean? This was the first time, and this was like a month ago. Partly because I knew I was going to become this public figure of, of some degree. Um, Mm. and I didn't want to have secrets, but at the same time, I want to be respectful of boundaries. You know, there's a difference between being, having a secret and keeping a boundary. Mm. Um, and it's Mm. a, it's, it's a fine line and different kids need different things, you know, Mm -hmm. some kids 
um, get more anxious around it. And some kids want to know and they're okay. But it's also like for me also a big point of it was to not be in mom space. So like the idea Mm. of bringing my kids on a date was just like not the point at all. That that gives me (laughs) hives to think about. You know what I mean? It was like I had plenty of time with my children. Um, I didn't sleep much for some of those years. But um, I don't think I sacrificed my children. I sacrificed sleep. Yeah, there's really something about, um, you know, being able to have the opportunity to go and step into, you know, a, a connection with somebody or just a moment to yourself where you actually don't have that. For that for those moments, you don't have to to be that person who is, you know, yeah. tending to the little ones and and just, you know, when you're anybody who has children, when you're with them, it's like, a hun- you know, 100% focus, you know, for them and, and their needs and they're constantly, you know, coming to you and everything. So, you know, I think it is really amazing and so healthy to be able to have moments in our lives when we can step away from that, you know, really fully and with people who actually are not so um, they're not caught up with our role as mother. They're not like seeing that side of ourselves as Mm-mm. well. And there's yeah. something so beautifully liberating and freeing and and sexy about that and enlivening. Yeah. And then and it's not for for a lack of appreciation for you know ourselves as mother. It's a, it's such a such right. beautiful. It's we're like, bigger. It's our whole we're, hearts. We're just we're just just more too to us. big, Abby, to be yes, one yes. thing. We're just just too huge. big. In addition to Molly, you being a mother and having that that caretaking role as a mother, you were also a teacher as well. Mm -hmm. So you had this, you had this huge sense of like so many people that you were caring for. If anyone needed a, an escape, you know, it was, it was you, Molly, you needed to to have a fun night out on Saturday night, you know? And it was also kind of the early years of my mother's illness. Some of it was going on when I was going back to, you know, my hometown in Evanston. I was trying to go back one weekend a month and give my dad some respite care because he was taking care of my mom. Now they have more help. But um, yeah, and I, and I write about it in the book. I, would, I was just, I was plagued with migraines. Um, mm. And part of my journey was figuring out what was that about. And what I ultimately discovered was that a war was going on inside of me b- between who my true self was and who this perfect self I was trying to be for everybody um, and it wasn't sustainable. So mm. it's something had to give and I had to find a release valve. Right. Um, and, and for me, it, it was this. But like mm. I've said before, it doesn't have to be this. But this this is hard. I, I, I mean, as I've said a million times already in the book, I tried to show how hard it was, too, because I don't want anybody thinking it's just like roses and kittens. But I also think it's I think it's easier when you go in with your eyes open to like, oh, what might happen? I didn't know what might happen. Mm. I thought it was perfectly reasonable to say, oh, no, no falling in love. Let's just not fall in love. I mean, that's insane. (laughs) But I what was I thinking? But I really I convinced myself that was possible. Mm. And um, anyway, Mm. yeah. So but you're right. I had a lot on my plate. Thank you. (laughs) I feel Thank you for noticing. My my son once said to me, and this is interesting, Abby. I think this is a good one. Mm-hmm. My son once said to me, I was sitting in a chair. They were probably like 11 and 8. And my son said, wow, mom, I don't think I've ever seen you sit in the living room before. Because I'm always just like up in the kitchen. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. he never, he didn't see me. He saw me sit down to eat. 
but he mm. never saw me sitting. And I'm like, whoa, <laughs> that's kind of messed up. You know what I mean? It's like you want your boys in particular, you want your boys to see you being a whole person who deserves rest, right? Like, what are we doing as mothers thinking that the ideal is to be this two-dimensional being that can do anything for anybody, any time of day. It's insane. Mm -hmm. It's very powerful. Absolutely. I think it is really important for our sons to see that. And, you know, as they go into the world with their relationships to sort of you know, to look that because we're always going to look at to our parents, you know, and what was sort of modeled or what was shown and, and mm-hmm. you know, the good things and the bad things and there's lessons along the way. And I mean, what a beautiful lesson and a showing to young men growing up that, you know, their mother had her own sense of self, her own identity and that love and romance and connection and commitment doesn't need to be so um you know, completely self-sacrificing to the point where you said earlier that we become totally selfless, you know, Mm -hmm. and I just think that's so important. And, you know, can we please have, you know, more men who are in the world who are encouraging these other, um, you know, aspects of fulfillment for their partners, you know, and like you said, it doesn't have to necessarily be non-monogamy, but to really value the importance of having that me time in whatever Mm -hmm. way that looks like, you know, for some people, it will be more of that connection for other people it might be you know going and just like having you know having a whole afternoon to yourself to go and read in a park and to not have to worry about you know doing dinner and bedtime and all of that just to have that like mental space as well so look honestly I think it's a I think it's a really beautiful example to men growing up it's really wonderful I have uh, some of my friends who are gay in particular like when I'm describing how people react to non-monogamy, they're like, wow, straight people are crazy. You know what I mean? They're like, <laughs> wow. And it's and it's partly, I think, these are largely, you know, I think there is something about heterosexuality that includes this gender dynamic, right? Mm. If you are a gay man or a gay woman, there is no, there's no programmed way in which you're going to conduct your relationship and your life because mm. you have to negotiate it. You know, you're the, you're, you're acknowledging kind of your sameness and your equality, mm. right? Yeah. And and when you are in a heterosexual relationship, we tend to um kind of devolve into these gender roles because that is exactly what we've seen all our lives. And and it comes with it, you know, there are some inherent problems that come with that. And we have mm. to work as a society to undo that. Right. And mm. I do think there's a reason why non-monogamy has been much more seen in the queer community than it is mm. in the heterosexual community. And mm-hmm. that was another reason I wanted to write the book I was writing, because I was seeing stories that were like, you know, people who were more gender fluid or who were bisexual or who were gay or all of these different sexual identities where this kind of freedom was allowed and encouraged. Mm. And I'm like, what's it about in heterosexual relationships that it's not, you know, it's only weird to the heteros to the straight people. I swear to God, anybody I've talked to who's gay is not. They're like, uh huh. Yeah. And, you know, I, m- I met a gay couple in London last spring and they said something so interesting. They're like, oh, yeah, well, we, of course, you know, 
we have a relationship, like we could be non-monogamous. And we did it for like a couple months, but just, I don't know. I just don't really want to, you know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. it was just like, cool. (laughs) It's like, it's not a rule. It's just like, of Mm. course, it's just an assumption, Mm -hmm. not an assumption, Mm -hmm. but I do, I feel like it's, it's just a different kind of discussion often that I think straight people could learn from big time. Do you want to read my new premium article, My Husband's Best Friend, and read about blurring the lines of long-term friendship and desire? Or maybe you want two extra premium podcast episodes each month. If you would like to show support for all of the work we do over at Evolving Love Project, gain access to premium podcast episodes and unlock all of my writing, you can sign up at evolvingloveproject.substack.com. Absolutely. And that you know, just hearing you speak now, that comes up, you know, I'm thinking back to that moment where I mentioned, you know, in Central Park, where it's like that moment of you're like realizing how much of the mental load that you carry with your children, like even like you're thinking, you know, I'm here in this moment and, you know, I wonder what's happening with them right now. Okay. It's this time they'd be getting picked up. And then it's that moment of, well, does Stu ever think about that? You know, he's, he's at work a lot or he's, or what about when he's out on a date? You know, does that, Does he ever have those moments? And for me, that was just so like, you know, that's huge because it's like it just shows how often, you know, and of course everyone's relationship's different, but it's Mm -hmm. like how much women and mothers carry, you know, always, you know, it's not just, it's not just the things that need to be like, um, you know, done, but it's like just that, that constant you know, they're, they're always, the children are always on our mind and it's like mm-hmm. everything that we do is like thinking about what's about to come and do, do the husband sometimes, you know, are they, are they thinking about that as well? And I just thought that was a very, very interesting part in the book. I, I want to add to that, Abby, that there's a moment right after that I said, he doesn't have, he, he doesn't necessarily think about it all the time because he knows he doesn't have to, because I've mm-hmm. got it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. it's like, you know, it's on me too. It's on all of us. When mm. when these gender roles happen, it takes two to tango. And that was something I learned in therapy as well, in couples therapy, that um, if if I wanted, you know, and, and I think it's, you know, my husband's 56, I'm 51. We're like, we're like, geezers to my children you know what I mean so it's like I I have to remember like there there are different younger men are doing things differently I hope now Mm. my children are um but we had to kind of like learn again you know we had to teach each other that it doesn't have to be me Mm. and because I I assumed it had to be me too so I did it and I would shoo mm. him away like, no, I got it. I got it. I got it. And then like do the put upon self-sacrificial martyr thing that doesn't serve anybody. I've had that question before where when I've told people that I'm non-monogamous, they're like, well, where is your son when you're on a date with somebody? It's like with his dad or like <laughs> yeah, right. with his nana. <laughs> like, <laughs> We have some other people that love him in our world. Some, yeah. We have some other people that love them, but it's like this shock of like, well, you know, how, how dare, you know, you, um, you know, be, be not with your child. Like, 
all of the time, you know. Um, and I mean, that's something that we've sort of noticed in some of our own comments, you know, when we've gone a little bit public with our non-monogamy and that's always something that that comes up. And yeah, the mental load, it's, it's fascinating. Um, I want to know, Molly, with this book, you know, you've written these stories and we're so attached to them and these, these, um, these men who you're on these journeys with to varying degrees, you know, some of them are, you know, men who you'd met on, um, you know, Ashley Madison and others were more in the, you know, when you were on OK Cupid and you're starting to form these connections. Have any of these um, men, you know, obviously you hit identities, but have any of these um, ex-lovers or partners from that period of your life reached out to you since seeing you, you know, you're in the New York Times and you're just everywhere right now? Has anybody been coming coming back from the past? Yes. Um, but I will say also a couple of the big relationships that I talk about in the book, those, those relationships re reestablished themselves as friendships later. Mm. Um, and so I didn't write about that in the book, but mm-hmm. um, there were at least a couple people who have stayed important to me. Um, mm. And yeah, I did get, I've gotten a couple texts. You know, one funny thing I used to keep in my phone, I used to give any man I met, I used to give him a, them a female name in my phone in case my my sons were like, because they used to like grab my phone and like play games on them and stuff. And so I would just be. And so this name came up and it was like, I can't remember what it was now, but it was like Susanna or something. And I'm like, oh, who the hell was Susanna? You know what I mean? It was like, <laughs> you know, because I like would do these like. Yeah, usually it was like related somehow to their name or it would like remind me of something. But I was like, oh, my God, I could not remember who the heck it was. And they were like, hi. And I'm like, hey, you, you know, I was just like, (laughs) but anyway, anybody who's like who's deeply important to me, I will remember who they are. Um, Mm. But yes, they're, you know. But mostly it's been very positive. I don't think I've had any Mm. like I mean, it's been to be fair, this is day three since it came out. Yeah. <laughs> so there are a lot Sheesh. of people who haven't finished it yet or who didn't even know it existed. You are riding the waves right now. What a whirlwind. And we feel like we're on the journey too, because Molly, you know, I'm in this group chat with you, the non-monogamums, you know, we're talking Woo. about all of these things. And it's like every day I'm waking up and it's like, what's happening today with more? It's like, oh, you know, the other night I woke up weirdly at like 1.30 in the morning or 2am or something. I couldn't sleep. And then there it was in the New York Times, you know, mine, I was up like reading it and then I couldn't, couldn't sleep. It's like we're on the adventure too. It's very exciting. The last few nights, Abby's been reading the book in, in our little studio that we have, and I've just heard her kind of chuckling. And, and then, of course, what happens is she comes to me and she goes, oh, I just read this little bit. And, and I've been dipping in and out of the book because I haven't had as much time. But she, we've been kind of comparing notes and having these amazing discussions. And one thing that I've found about your book is that it is an incredible conversation starter. I think mm-hmm. anyone who is reading this book is immediately going to go to their partner. They're going to be lying in bed. They're going to go, hey, babe check this out this happened like what do you what do you think about this and I wanted to bring up something that Abby and I um, had been chatting a lot about um, because it's 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 a really interesting kind of ethical question is that I Mm. I posed the question to Abby I was saying you know I wonder if you were if you were starting uh, out your non-monogamous journey today 
whether having more options to be able to, to date openly, um, you know, non-monogamous people, would you have changed your approach necessarily? Mm. Uh, you, you know, maybe perhaps you wouldn't have been dating men in, in relationships. What, what's, your, what's your kind of a, a opinion of those things now? I would definitely only date people who are also in open relationships, I think. Yeah. But you know what? Um, I, I, what I wouldn't do is date men who are cheating. Mm. Um, and the reason for that is kind of obvious. It's, you know, there's, there's a piece of it that's ethical, but there's also a piece of it that's just like, it, it's, it, it's just, they're in a different place than I am. You know what I mean? Mm. It's like, um, I found, to be honest, there were people that I met on Ashley Madison who had sometimes, you know, what felt to me like compelling reasons for why they were cheating. Someone who's, um, you know, and not everybody would agree with me and that's okay, but somebody mm -hmm. whose wife had been very ill and couldn't have sex and mm. he was very committed to her, but was kind of like dying inside. And there was something about that that I was like, I kind of, you know, I had to, I had compassion for that situation. And, you know, I know there's probably some um, what's the word I'm looking for, you know, justification going on in in my mind, too. But I was like, well, I'm I am not interested in being a force of destruction in anybody's relationship mm -hmm. like that is not mm -hmm. something I'm going to do. Um, but at the same time, I think we're moving into a time now where I think there's enough candor and enough discussion about non-monogamy that anybody who is not having that conversation, I would be less interested in being with because um, I feel like some some groundwork has been laid for people to have those conversations now. And th mm. that would be an expectation of mine. Whereas before, I didn't know how and this I didn't have a, a crystal ball to know that dating apps were coming with non-monogamy in the menu. Mm. I just, I didn't know. So mm. even the fact that I could go on my computer and find people who I could maybe date, you know, and I was trying to be kind of selective. You you read about some of the worst stories in there, but um, <laughs> I'll be honest, there were a couple other people that I met on Ashley Madison who I'm still in touch with that didn't make it into the book because there was no drama in our relationship, mm. you know? They were just mm -hmm. like, good guys who were going through some hard stuff. Um, and, you know, I had to think about where, what was my story and what was not my story. Um, some times somebody had like an interesting story, but it wasn't really impacting my understanding of myself. So I didn't feel like it was my right to talk about their story. Um, so I, I tried to keep it to the, the relationships that really shaped me in my understanding of what, of what I wanted. But um, yeah, so I, I don't want to vilify somebody who's, who's not been faithful. I think it's easy to do that too. And to, to point fingers around the room of like, well, I'm moral and you're not, but no, you're immoral. I'm the moral. Like, mm. no, we're all mm. flawed human beings here. We're mm -hmm. all flawed mm. human beings. And anybody who doesn't acknowledge their own flaws is, not being authentic. And so mm. I had to own my own flaws and I had to make sure I was showing my own ugly underbelly and my own kind of shameful actions in order to 
have a reader believe me and and care what I had to say. Because if you're not willing to look at yourself, why should anybody care what you have to say? And that's such a powerful thing about more is that this word vulnerability gets thrown around so much these days. And I think for me, the, the thing that is so vulnerable about the work is not only you're being vulnerable about your emotions, but just the radical honesty of things that people who are reading it might not necessarily have a positive reaction to, you know, there were, there were things, uh, that there were things when I was reading, um, when I was reading excerpts that it, it felt that, uh, you know, I, I had this kind of ethical judgment of it, of it happening. And I had to mm-hmm. reconcile that with, you know, my ability to, to interact with you as the character within the book. And then mm-hmm. also reconcile that within the broader nature of relationships in the world and, and the ethics of, of, of all these types of things. When you kind of looking back on it, do you feel that there was almost like the eroticism was added to by the taboo within that, those initial explorations? For, for some of the men I was with, I know that was the case, you know, mm. um, the Laurent character who like mm. really mm. favored sex in bathrooms and things like that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Which, <laughs> uh, it's just not, it's not very, it's not very sexy. And, um, but yeah, there was something kind of like, oh, you know, we're doing something bad. Um that no longer, I mean, yeah, talking about things that I would no longer be interested in doing, like, mm. heck, mm. no. Um, and I also was kind of going through a, a sort of teenage rebellion, too, because uh, I did not have any of this kind of exploration in my teen years. I was straight up, you know, goody goody two shoes and not very in touch with my, uh, my own desires. Um, mm. So, Part of me, I think, was just I was kind of behaving like a teenager at times and doing things that the more mature me would not have been very interested in doing. For me personally, that got that got old. Um, I think other people, it might be something that is really continually exciting for them. And that's okay. It's just I'm um, I kind of got over it. It wasn't that exciting after a while. It just kind of became less comfortable. And and there's like a little bit of shame to it that I, you know, I don't I no longer enjoy sex with a side of shame. I think at the time Mm. I didn't know I didn't know that you could order these things separately, that they are all a cart. You don't have to have shame as a topping on your sex. Um, Oh, you're at the buffet now. <laughs> but I'm very yeah. particular. I've gotten way more particular, but I I could only be particular because I had to experiment to find out what I liked and what I didn't like, right? I did I was kind of trying things at the buffet because I had never tried them. Mm. And I was like, let me see how I feel about this. And so there was something very liberating about that too. Um and so I did try things that weren't for me. You know, but Mm. I don't have any regret that I tried them because now I know if I didn't Mm. try, I wouldn't know. Speaking of one side salad that you did try and you mentioned (laughs) his name just before is uh, Mr. Laurent. 
I spoke before about, you know, moments where Abby, you know, and I are, are trading kind of discussion points about things that have been brought up in this incredible book. Um, but one was this particular scene, I think it's in a co-working space. And uh, Laurent, um, in Australia, and I think it's a universal term, but there is this uh, instance of stealthing um, where, you, unbeknownst to you, um, you have sex without a condom and then he doesn't seem to particularly see the problem. I, I don't know if he ever put it on or not um, mm. in that time, but it wasn't there. I don't think he had. Um, but he he told me he had, but he hadn't. Because mm. um, he was... and And I felt... Again, shame and guilt thinking, well, I should have known. I should have been able to tell, right? Um, but I didn't. Um, and so I took that responsibility on myself. And it wasn't until many years later where I was watching, and we were just talking about this. Um, there's a, a British TV series called I Will Destroy You. And the main character has a stealthing episode. I had never heard the term. Um, mm. In America, it is not a form of assault. It's not considered a form of assault. Um, and it was really, it was really jarring to me. Um, mm. I talked about it with mm. my therapist, I remember, because I was just like, whoa, this was assault, you know? Um, and it was a little hard for me to wrap my head around it kind of after the fact. Um, but I'm grateful to that show for for showcasing that because it it let me release some shame I had had about like I should have known right mm. um, it it was my fault not his fault that he had done this um, and it made me also you know I had a little residual shame too that like how could I not have realized this is a form of assault or you know what I mean there's all these mm. things we do as women to kind of work through things that mm -hmm. happen to us in a way that we can um, move on from them. But um, yeah, I because I wrote the book in present tense and I didn't use kind of like the the backwards glance of, of mm. realizing what this meant, I, in the book, don't call it out a stealth thing because I didn't know that term at the time. Um, mm. But that's what it was. And uh but it's so important to share stories like this, um, and and the power of of you writing a, a you know a, a book like this is that it now starts the conversations where hopefully all men um, as in particular as well will read that and go this is horrifying this is obviously clearly problematic and these are mm -hmm. situations that you know have to be avoided um, and really yeah. the, the the kind of discussions around this by speaking about it in popular culture by you seeing that on a show by in Australia it's actually illegal in in many states which is fantastic um, you know but it's it's just so important to be having these really visceral and honest conversations that's that's one of the beautiful things about art and pop culture. And and the times we live in, to be frank, because we can have these international discussions pretty easily, mm. you know, um, and that I, I watched a show in, you know, a British show, wrote about it as an American, and then you read mm. about it in Australia. It's just cool. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's cool. I like it. I like that we can have these talks with more. I just think it's so wonderful, Molly, because, you know, as we've just discussed, it's it's very real. Like these are very real moments that have happened. It's there are some moments in more that are just 
they're they're unglamorous. You know, it's just like very much how it was. There's there's fumbling. There's there are things that in the book that are so real to what you know could potentially happen when when a monogamous relationship starts to open up. And I think that's so powerful, especially with at the moment. I feel like the more I'm sort of reading about polyamory and what's coming up in the polyamorous space and um, different people who are talking about it, there's so many like ideals, you know, it's like, well, Mm -hmm. it needs to be, it needs to be done this way. And if you're in a couple and you're opening up, you know, you need to be like this type of couple and you can't allow for like that type of feeling. Or if you're having this kind of emotion, it means you're controlling and this and that. And, you know, you're not letting your partner be fully free. And to me, when I read that, I'm just thinking like, are we in the real world? Like, (laughs) because these stories, like opening up is going to have huge stumbles. There are going to be those moments where when, you know, you're opening up a marriage and, you know, sometimes you're going to feel better about it when you yourself are having positive other, you know, positive other relationship experiences but when they fold it's to me it's quite normal that there is that moment of of like genuine freak out and like hang on I actually what am I even doing this for I didn't sign up to this to be feeling like heartbroken and terrible and like how is this happening this is meant to be fun you know so reading more was so validating for me Molly because I have had those moments like I have had those moments where I've felt great with non-monogamy everything's going awesome you know things are great with Liam and I've got a, a a lover and things are going really well, a new relationship, new partner. And then that crumbles. And I'm just like, what am I doing? Like, this is like, I'm distressed. Liam, we need to rethink non-monogamy, you know? And Liam's like, just take a deep breath. Like, it's okay. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I'm not, you know, well, I don't know, you know, if I'm I want to be doing this, you know, and Liam yeah. is stew, yeah. you know? And yeah. so just like reading more, I'm like, you know, this is how it can be. And I know that because that is what I have gone through myself on numerous occasions. And so, you know, it does blow my mind when we're in this, you know, polyamory is like so easy and you just have to like, you know, just like agree with this all of the time. And if you don't agree with it, you know, like you just, it's, you know, you're not, um, you know, you're not like polyamorous enough or you're something. You're not involved. And it just like, Right. You're not evolved. You're, you're not evolved. Yeah. And it's like banging yeah. my head against the wall thinking, oh, are we on the same planet? <laughs> I I love that you brought that up. I love that you brought that up. And I it makes me think a couple of things. One is that I think whenever you're trying to, you know, kind of change the societal viewpoint on something, there's a tendency to try to present it in its best possible light. Right. Mm -hmm. That if you admit to any of the negative parts of of polyamory, you're giving ammunition to people who say it can't work Mm -hmm. or it's a Mm -hmm. bad idea. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think the opposite is true. I think that's that's just a symptom of, of the polarization we have in our society where. Like we're all just like holding fast to our position and saying, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And so Mm. we lose so much truth when we do that. Right. Um, And the only way to create any real change is to really blow the whole thing up and admit all the things, all the things mm-hmm. that are true and nothing mm-hmm. is off the table. Every All the things are true. Because um, I think the other thing that happens is people want to believe, especially when you're in this polarized world, people want to believe they're doing the right thing, right? They don't want to feel like they're bad. 
So mm. everybody's doubling down on what they're doing and saying like, no, this is the way, this is the right thing. It's not, it, there is no right, there is no wrong. Mm -mm. There is just mm. us being humans trying to figure it out. And to me, you know, my mother has this beautiful message, I think, and it was the message she gave me that said everything, when I asked her, remember, I was like, what did you, how do you feel now looking back? Like, are you, are you glad you opened your marriage? Did you do it for yourself? Did you do it for dad? Like, tell me, oh, wise mm. one, right? What have you learned? Mm. And she was like in her 70s. And she was like, well, I don't know. You know, and I was like, <laughs> oh, you know, but she was like, <laughs> yeah. she was like, the one thing I do know is that everything that happens, whether you think it's good or you think it's bad, everything that happens is an opportunity to learn about yourself. Mm. And that is true. And it's like, if you live your life viewing everything that happens as an opportunity to learn about yourself, that's the way to do it, right? If you spend all of your time labeling things as good and bad, you're going to miss mm. the whole point, which is to learn. Mm -hmm. So that that I thought was beautiful that my mother taught me. That's a, a beautifully... Uh poignant thing to to impart upon you as well and and now we get to hear it as well <laughs> everybody who reads more it's in there the way in which more is just so honest and it really is so beautifully written and so genuine um it's a real gift to everyone um so i i think it's uh yeah we we can't speak highly enough of this book i mean it's it's clear that you Thank are you. an english teacher because it is, it is <laughs> It is really remarkably, yeah, it's remarkably written. Your turn of phrase, your writing voice. It's so it's, funny. Oh, thank you. It's so funny. It's, it's so thank poignant. You. We're crying. We're laughing. Um, yeah, so, so thank you That's for That's what life for is, right? Life is crying and laughing. Oh, that was the other thing I wanted to say, Abby, about what you said. People mm. think that pain is bad. People mm. think, and I thought that too. It's like, I'm feeling pain. I'm feeling bad. This needs to stop. We need to, you know, we need to change everything because I don't like this feeling. But that mm. is also how we grow, right? That if you're feeling jealous or angry or sad, feel it and mm. let your partner help you feel it. And just don't close off any of those doors. That was one of our big learnings, too. Like Stuart would get uncomfortable with my anger, or my jealousy and be like, why are you angry? Why are you jealous? Just stop it. You know what I mean? And we had to kind of come to a place where like, this is the price of admission. If you want to have a non-monogamous mm -hmm. relationship, you have to hear all my feelings and you have to help me hold them. You can't just mm. turn your back on my feelings and say, uh, I don't like that feeling. And I couldn't exactly. either. I couldn't say, I don't like this feeling. I'm going to stuff it. Right. We have to feel everything and own it. That's the only way through. That's right. It's the emotional journey. I mean, so much of the learning for Liam and I, it hasn't necessarily always come from, you know, things going great in the relationships or having these like wonderful experiences. It's all of this other right. stuff that it's bringing up. It's like that moment where I'm saying, well, actually, I don't want you to see her anymore because I'm feeling this thing about my other thing. And what does that mean? And, <laughs> and then what does that mean for us? And what does that mean for non-monogamy? And right. what's happening with our connection? What's going on with our relationship? What do we need more? What do I need more? You know, and that oh is my just, God. you know, that is what it's about. You just used my title like three times there, Abby, too. <laughs> what do I need more? What do we need more? What does he exactly. need more? That's what it's about. What do we need more of? And go and get it. Go. Oh, and my get gosh. It. Go. Go and get it. And go and get the book, everybody. Honestly, it is. Can a you get it? In 
Can so, you get it in Australia? Okay, so so you can import it, but I don't know if there's distribution yet from there the isn't Australian yet. sellers. Yes, I mean, it'll, we're it's about to be distributed it. in Antarctica, you know, it's it's uh, everyone wants to read it. Oh, my God. Well, I I I did have a meeting with a certain large um, British newspaper last week, an interview that's air. You know, I, I won't say which one, but it's okay. pretty big. <laughs> so our hope is that that's going to like, <laughs> jo- you know, jockey some. Um, usually it's a UK distributor or UK publisher that distributes to the rest mm-hmm. of the English-speaking mm. world. Oh, okay. yep. um, mm. So that's often the way it goes. So I got double day for just Canada and the U.S., um, but then it's often a U.K. publisher that will do the rest of the distribution. But I think we're, we're hoping to get that moving soon. We will definitely investigate it, and we will put it in our show notes. Um, yes. Okay. We're going to put everything you, in the show just, notes. Wait. Just wait for a year or so. No, it's but it's also like it's so it's so worth talking about. You don't have to read the book to have this conversation. You know what I mean? It's like it's just one voice out there. So um, what a voice. It's a powerful voice and it's an honest voice. And it's a voice that I think has come at the the perfect time. Mm. So thanks for joining us on the Evolving Love podcast. Thank you, Molly. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Evolving Love podcast. And we hope you enjoyed this conversation. Evolving Love is a listener-supported podcast, so if you have connected with the work we do at Evolving Love Project and would like to show your support and gain premium access, you can sign up at evolvingloveproject.substack.com. The link is in the show notes. Alternatively, you can like, comment, follow, or share the Evolving Love podcast or my Substack with anyone who may love listening and reading about the non-monogamous musings of two Aussie parents.